when we thought about coming to Father's Day, you know, there's always that question of like, are we going to go onto a Father's Day sermon topic? And we prayed about that and talked about it. And as I just prayed more and more and more about it and looked at the text that we happen to be in, which is in Revelation chapter 15 and 16 today, I just really felt like what's there is such an important thing for fathers, not just for fathers in homes, but for all of us. And so we decided to continue on in the book of Revelation. I think you'll see how important these topics are as we think about our response towards sin and what that should look like in our lives and our own lives and, and even some of the temptations. And so if you uh, have your Bibles, please turn with us to Revelation chapter 5. We're going to be reading Revelation chapter, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 15. We're going to read 15 verse 5 through chapter 16 verse 21. And would you please stand with us out of respect for God's word? And uh, I will pass it off to Pam. Good morning. Revelation chapter 15 verses 5 through 8. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in that sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits, like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief, 
Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that, is he, in, that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Church, hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pam, thank you. Let's pray. Father, um, here you've given us a text, and there's a lot in it. Yeah, there's a lot in it that feels, um, it feels hard. And yet I know that you have given us this word because you've told us why. You've given it so that we might find blessing, that we might find life, uh, that as we seek to keep these things, uh, Father, that we would experience even an abundance of life and flourishing. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on, on those things, even as um, we, we do celebrate fathers today, even as we do think about how to conduct ourselves as um, men in this society and, and women and, and singles and married and everybody, Lord, how we, content, how we conduct ourselves, how we deal with our sin. And Lord, help us to see um, your mercy and your grace in this text, not just your wrath. And, and Lord, I pray that you'd help me because I know there's just there's so many different things that could be said, so many ways that we could be misunderstood. And our heart and our desire is that you would be glorified, that your name would be exalted, and that Father, um, we would just see you more clearly and your heart. And so just please be with us, um, guide us, lead us to truth. Um, we pray and ask all these things in your um, wonderful, precious name. Uh, amen. So like I said, I, I do think there's a lot here for us um, on this Father's Day. And, and I know you look at this text and you're like, man, this is really, really hard. But I think if you follow with us um, all the way to the end, what you'll find is that there's actually a lot of encouragement in this text. And there's actually uh, a lot of hope in this text. And there is certainly some warnings in this text. Now, before we jump into it specifically, I also want to kind of um, lead you to this. Next week, I want you to be mindful of where we're headed. Um, we're headed into uh, Revelation chapter 17. And so for you moms and dads who have kids that like to be in here, um, I'd encourage you to go read through that because it's a, got some language in Revelation chapter 17 and just make sure you're aware. We're going to be talking about that language. We're going to be using biblical language in that. And so to make sure you're aware of what's coming. So go read Revelation 17 just so you know where we're headed. But before we jump into this text, let me, let me share you, uh, with you a little bit of a story that I think will actually maybe help us frame a little bit of what's happening. And, and it's a story from my own um, parenting, from my life with my kids. And when my daughter was really young, Samantha, when she was um, just a really little young toddler, around two years old, uh, she could barely talk. We had one of those moments as uh, a parent-daughter uh, relationship where uh, kind of the uh, an unstoppable force met an immovable object. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of a parenting moment. 
Um, but it was, it was really strange. We were about to go to bed, um, put, put Sam to bed, and I had asked her to do something really, really small, um, not even a really big thing. And in all of the cuteness and adorableness of her little body, she decided to just flat out rebel. All right? And so, so here we were now in this moment where it's like, as a dad, it's like, oh man, like, am I going to deal with this? Am I going to address this issue? Or are we just going to let it go? Well, we decided and felt like it needed to be addressed. And so suddenly, uh, the uh, immovable objects of my desire for obedience came into contact with the unstoppable force of her rebellion as a two-year-old. And we went into this cycle of, uh, honey, I need you to obey. And then she wouldn't, and she would go, nope, not doing it. And we would discipline, and then we would cry, and then we would say, I love you. And then we'd say, honey, we need you to obey. Will you submit? No. Okay. Discipline. Cry. Honey, will you submit? We did this for 45 minutes. It was awful. It was awful until finally my little two-year-old girl, um, in all of the strength that God has given to her, she finally decided to just submit and, and, and that rebellion kind of broke. And at the end of it, you know, we're all snot-faced, and we're all crying, and there's tears, and we're all exhausted. Um, but in that, she was able to find life. Now, why, why do I tell us this story? I tell us this story because when we are seen in Scripture, God's wrath and God's punishment and God's discipline, so often we get this vision of God sitting up in heaven as just, just this kind of angry just kind of spiteful God who has made a whole bunch of rules that if we break, he's just going to like throw a bunch of wrath down on us and we miss what is ultimately something that, that we, we can't ever miss, which is God's heart in discipline and in wrath. And we're going to see that as we go forward. But as we look at this and as we look at the seven bowls and we look into God's wrath, we need to start with understanding that what we're getting vision on is an absolute, unwavering, and yet unpleasurable reality. We see in Revelation chapter 15, starting in verse 5, a transition into something that is happening. It's happening on the world stage. And, and it's important for us to understand where it's coming from. It's coming from the sanctuary. It's coming from the very temple. This is coming from God himself. Revelation 15, 6, and 7. Out of the sanctuary came the seven angels. With what? Seven plagues. And they're clothed in pure bright linen. And that's important, right? Because they're with us, a lot of times in our rage and our anger and our wrath, oftentimes it's tainted by sin, isn't it? This is not the case for God. His is pure his is righteous. There's no, there's no sin in his anger. There's no flying off the handle in God. Like his, this, this is part of what is right for him and the right way for him to engage. And it says that they're clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sash around, sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So what do we see? We see seven angels Seven plagues and seven bowls full of wrath. Seven plagues are now about to be poured out upon the earth. And in wrath, they're about to come. And their purpose, though, is consistent with God's purpose when it comes to wrath and discipline that we've seen throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture. All right? 
So here's what I mean by that. I'm going to go all the way back in early history of God's people in the book of Leviticus. I know we love to quote Leviticus, right? That's our favorite book to read over and over again is the book of Leviticus. Well, here's the thing. I would encourage you really highly to read chapter 26 of Leviticus this week. I don't have time to read the whole thing. But in essence, here's what happens. In Leviticus chapter 26, in verse 14, we begin to see some if-then statements from God. And he begins to say things like, if you will not listen to me, so this is God speaking to his people, if you will not listen to me, and then do all these commandments that I've given to you, all right? So if you don't listen to me, and if you don't obey my commandments, then I will visit you. And we don't really want him to visit us in that moment, right? I will visit you, and I will set my face against you. You think, okay, that's the end of the story, but it's not. Leviticus 6.26 keeps going. He says, and if in spite of this, Right? So in spite of me setting my face against you, if you will still not listen to me, then I will discipline you. Right? So, so listen to me, and if you don't, I'm going to turn my face against you. And, and if you still won't listen to me, then I'm going to continue to discipline you. And then he says in verse 21 this, Then, even after I've disciplined you, even after I've turned my face against you, Then if you walk contrary to me and you still will not listen to me, then I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Sevenfold. Four times in Leviticus 26, he says that he is going to strike the people of Israel sevenfold for their sins. But it's always in context of if. If you don't listen, if you walk away, If you don't obey my commands, only to come to verse 40 of Leviticus 26, which says that in the midst of all that, it means all the times, like with my daughter, I had to discipline her, but she continued to rebel over and over and over again. In the midst of all of that, God comes to verse 40 and he says, but if you confess your iniquity, then I will remember my covenant. Isn't that a good thing? Like you just think about that? Like, isn't that a beautiful thing that we can rebel over and over and over again and God disciplines us and we keep rebelling and he disciplines us again and we keep rebelling and he says, but in the end, if you finally will confess, then I'll still remember my covenant to you. Now, this is important because we think about what we're seeing in these visions. We're seeing and thinking about the idea of the sevenfold punishment against sin. I think that's part of what's being communicated in the book of Revelation, right? We've got seven trumpets. We've got seven seals. Now we've got seven bowls. Like God is giving the sevenfold punishment of this, to the sins of the world, but it's not without purpose. It's not. He's hoping that they would remember and they would confess their iniquity and turn to him. I want to share with you the heart of God in the midst of his his wrath in one of the most important verses, I think, in scriptures for us, especially in this day and age. And it's Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. It says this, For I have no pleasure, no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Do you see that? 
This is the purpose. So turn and live. Don't miss that. Like God has no pleasure. He has no pleasure whatsoever in suffering of people. Why is he doing it? Why does he send suffering? Why does he send discipline? Why is he sending these things? It's not just random. It's so that we would turn and live. I wasn't angry with my daughter when she was rebelling. I mean, there was anger, but it was a justified anger. I wasn't spiteful. I didn't hate her. I didn't want to see her suffer, but I was disciplining her so that she might turn and live. This is such an important thing for us. And it leads to us through our very first truth for today. And it's this, God's character and his love requires that wrath comes against sin and against our rebellion. But it is intended to drive us to turn and live. He takes no pleasure in it. He takes no pleasure in it. It's purposeful. And you know what? We shouldn't take pleasure in it either. In fact, this idea, when we read the wrath of God coming in these bowls, like we should read like, like, like with passion and zeal God's heart for the lost and pray that they would turn. You know, dads, I said for us, like this is an important thing for us. Like as you think about whether you're a father of kids, whether you're a grandfather, or whether you're like a spiritual mentor, a spiritual father of, of spiritual kids, when you think about how you address sin and brokenness, like it's important to call out sin when there's sin, amen? But we don't do that, and we don't bring about discipline just for punitive reasons. We bring it about so that those people might turn and live. If your discipline to your kids, fathers, is discipline that comes out of rage and anger that is uncontrolled without purpose, then you need to pull back and you need to not do it. It needs to be engaged with, with a purpose that we would see those kids turn, repent, and find life. And so this is a truth for us that undergirds everything we read in Revelation chapter 15 and 16. Now, as much as we hate seeing these things come upon the world, as much as we will see it more and more in the world as we live and as the time gets closer and closer to the Lord's return, we must never lose sight of why he's doing it and that even though people will say it's unfair and unloving, there is only one truth and it's given to us in verses five and seven. And it says this, just are you, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. That is a hard statement, isn't it? It's a hard statement. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And so why God's desire is that they would turn and find life we also recognize at the same time, it's what mankind deserves. The world's accusations against God don't change the fact that God's punishment for sin and his discipline for rebellion, they are right. And they are going to come about. Now, 
getting into the seven bowls, getting into the seven plagues themselves. I want us to look at them a little bit um, from a, a different perspective. And the reason why I say different perspective is because we can sit here and talk about, oh, when is, when is the seas going to turn to blood? Well, we don't know. We don't exactly know what that's going to look like. My guess is when it happens, we'll all know, right? That's not really a question. But the goal is for us here, and what I want to do is I want to look at the world's response to God's discipline. And then that, let that pose to us the question, like how do we respond to God's discipline and how should we respond to God's discipline? But we need to see first and foremost the sevenfold plagues against stubborn sin in this world. Now as we look at the text, we see the first four bowls they're given. And it seems interesting that they seem to be in direct correlation to the trumpets. If you remember the trumpets, if you weren't here when we studied that, you can go listen to that sermon. But what you find both in the trumpets and in Exodus, is an allusion to these, these judgments against that which we would trust in this world. And these seem to go in line with it. So like the first trumpet was against the earth. The first bowl is against the earth. The second trumpet was against the sea. The, first, the second bowl is against the sea. The third trumpet was against the springs of water. The third bowl is against the springs of water. The fourth trumpet was against the sun. The fourth bowl is against the sun. So what, what, is, what is happening here? What is going on here? Why is this order so important for us? Well, here's the reason why it's important. Because it ties itself to the creation. This is an unraveling of creation. This is an uncreating of that which was created. Isn't that fascinating? Like God is literally uncreating this. He, he's unraveling creation. And as we talked about with the, with the trumpets, that as men would look to the world and find trust in the world and the things of the world, God is unraveling those things. And he's even increasing a, 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 an escalation of those things to try to wake people up to the insufficiencies of that which they would worship. The insufficiencies of that which they would, that they would put their trust in. The seven trumpets we talked about several weeks ago, they seem to be God trying to help us see that things we worship are unfit, seems to be making a judgment and declaration that they're unfit, they're not worthy of our worship, and now we see God shifting to actually punishment because as we continue to do that and continue to worship those things, he now begins to punishment. But now the question is, how will people respond? Well, we see how people respond. Revelation chapter 16, verse 9. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. They did not repent and give him glory. The first response to God's punishment against sin, which is just and right and intentional to get them to turn and live, instead of turning and living and finding life, they refuse to give God the glory that is due Him. As objects of our trust dissolve, we will turn our trust away, or will we turn our trust away from them back to God and give God glory? Or we continue to drive down the path of trusting and worshiping other things. As creation is unraveled, as their worship is declared unfit, and they experience the sevenfold punishment of God, will they turn and give God glory? I want you to consider a modern day example. 
You see, because we live in a different day and age than we did maybe two or three hundred years ago. How many of you, when you woke up this morning, realized that the two or three inches of rain that we got last night was directly from the hand of God? All right? How many of you woke up and you were like, oh God, you're so good because you gave rain to this world to provide. And your rain comes upon the wicked and your rain comes upon the righteous and you are good and you're the one that determines that. Well, isn't it interesting that when we go into a season of drought, for example, we don't ask, well, why is God withholding rain? Should we? I'll give you a modern day. You may remember back in 2021 when we had uh, the massive droughts in the West. And in the West, there was those wildfires that kind of stirred up. And you may remember images like this um, from San Francisco, where for days the sky was orange because of all the wildfires. Remember that? And, and everybody was like, oh, those are all Photoshopped. And they weren't. That's just what the sky looked like in San Francisco. These are devastating season. But what was the response of most people in those places? Was it to go, God, why are you withholding rain? God, why is there drought? No, that wasn't, that wasn't the response at all. What was, they started to look at what was the cause. Well, it's, it's global warming, and we can fix this, and this is man's pollution, and, and, and we can address that. There was no giving of glory to God at all. That would have seemed insane to people living 200 years ago because they knew that there was a sovereign God that, that dictated when rain came and when it didn't come. But we don't even ask. We don't even pay attention. We don't even consider, is God trying to tell us something about how we're living our lives, how we're living our lives in a, as a culture, as a nation? Like there's no consideration as why or if there's an actual spiritual entity who made all things directing whether or not it rains or doesn't rain. Now, we believe that that's true, don't we? So why do we not give God the glory that is due Him? Instead of acknowledging Him, we just try to fix the problem. We try to address it ourselves. And listen, this isn't something that we see only on large scales in terms of a culture. We see it in our own individual lives as well, don't we? I see this kind of tendency in my own heart. Let's just say, for example that you trust in your own wisdom. And you're a good person. You go to church. You maybe read your Bible. But when it really comes down to it, you depend upon your wisdom. You depend upon your gifts. You depend upon your talents to get you through life. And listen, across the room, a lot of us could say we do a pretty good job at that. At least for the most part. But when things go out of control or they shake our world, and it's brought to light that our wisdom and our strength are not enough, that they're not sufficient. When our marriages begin to fall apart, when our kids begin to fall into rebellion, will we turn to him who is the utter source and the ultimate source of all wisdom? Will we make him our strength or do we double down and try to fix the problem? Or we double down and try to live in our own wisdom to fix things our way? We say to God, it's not my will, but your will. It's not your, my way, but your way. We ask God, where is your hand? And what idol in my life are you trying to attack right now that I might find life, that I might turn and live? How about control? 
This one hits personally home for me. Right? Like we spend our lives making sure, man, that all the pieces fit together. Like that we are controlling everything that's going on. That we have a plan in place. That we're taking care of every contingency. And everything's been considered. And then something comes in and it blows everything up. In that moment, do we recognize that our control is not sufficient? Do we bend our knee and look to the one who ultimately has control over everywhere, or everything, and, and put our trust in him and find hope in him? You think about anger. Think about anger. Why, why do we get angry? Why do we get angry? And I'm not talking about the anger of like when someone sins against you and that's a justified anger. I'm talking about when you're driving down the street and you're late for an appointment and somebody gets in front of you on a one-lane road and they drive 15 miles below the speed limit. I'm talking about that kind of anger. Like, why do we get angry in those types of circumstances? Like, what is it that happens? Or when we think that we've got our house perfectly organized and our kids come in and destroy it all right before the company comes over? Right? Like, why do we get angry in those moments? It's because we think that we've got everything kind of taken care of, and we've got thinking everything taken controlled, and then someone comes in and messes it all up. And so we get mad at them. Well, should we not be acknowledging God is the one who directs our steps and actually trusting in that? Like, what if, what if God put that person that drives 15 miles below the speed, lit, speed limit in front of you because he doesn't want you to get in a wreck five miles down the road. Or because he wanted you to have a divine appointment with somebody at the coffee shop that you could share the gospel with. Or, mind blow, so you'd actually learn patience. Right? Like, like, like instead of getting angry and, and being upset because someone's getting in the way of messing us up, like we don't give God the glory to understand that he's the one that orders our lives, that he's the one that directs our steps. Like we just get mad. You see what happens in our lives? Like this is the point. Like when things come to us and there's discipline that comes into our lives, the question is, will we respond by giving God the, the correct glory that is due him, or will we continue to just lean in and double down in our own efforts? And I think that's what the, this is calling us to. How do we respond? In the fifth bowl, we see God's wrath is poured out upon Satan's throne. While we don't know exactly what this means, it seems to call back to early sections of Revelation in chapter 2, verse 13, that seem to be pointing towards the, an imperial cult in Rome. So this idea was that Satan, somehow his ability to rule through earthly kings and kingdoms seems to be hindered at this point in history. Things are bringing torment and darkness in a way that foreshadows the final judgment. And again, we don't know what this means. Maybe it's a collapse of economic systems that don't allow our lifestyles of pleasure and debauchery to continue on or in sin. We don't know exactly what the case is, but we do know how people respond and how do people respond? Revelation 16, verse 11. They do not repent of their deeds. And so in the midst of discipline, one of the optional responses for us is to refuse to turn from our wickedness. We should consider Jesus' warning in John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. When torment comes when torment comes from our own sin, either because 
God's discipline comes upon us, or it's just the consequences of our sin, right? Sometimes we get mad at God because of the consequences of our sin, when in reality, it's just the consequence of your sin. Like, if my kid disobeys me and touches the stove, that punishment, that suffering that they experience isn't because of my punitive anger towards them, it's the consequence of touching a hot stove, right? And it's both and sometimes. And in the midst of those moments, like, what do we do? What do we do when we see that our sin is causing havoc and wreaking havoc and causing damage in our lives? Do we turn and repent of our sin? Or do we go deeper into our sin? Again, consider how this plays out. Just think about any addiction. Any addiction. Alcohol. Drugs. Sex. Let's go with some things more benign, like ice cream, shopping, social media. How do these addictions play out in our lives? Like, what happens to us in these lives? They promise something to us. They promise that they're going to satisfy us. They promise that we can put some trust in them. They promise that they're going to make us content and fix something that's in our heart. And so we go towards them, and when we begin to to experience those things and they cause damage in our lives, which they always do, what, what do we tend to do? Do we tend and go, oh, Lord, I see, I see the consequence of this sin, and so I'm going to now turn from that sin, and I'm going to repent and find life? Or do we say, you know what I need to do? I just need to eat more ice cream. I need to go shopping more. I need to turn that computer on more. I need to go to the alcohol store more. I'm not finding the same satisfaction social media used to give me, so I need to go on to it more. Like, see, this is what we tend to do as Christians, and not even just Christians, but as people, is that when we are faced with the consequences of our sin, instead of us waking up and being like, oh man, like God may be doing something, God may be showing me something, God may be disciplining me and trying to get me to turn and live, we just double down and go deeper. Because the fact of the matter is, most often people refuse to repent of their deeds. They just go headlong into more of it. You think of our own nation. In many ways, is it not hard to believe and see that God's hand of blessing is being removed from this country? Economically, relationally, think about safety, Families and the breakdown of families flourishing within our society. The love of men growing cold, division. Like it feels like God's hand of blessing is being removed from this nation. Are we going, Lord, bring back your blessing? We're going to repent of our sins? Or do we say, you know what we should do? We should set up a month to celebrate our sins. That's, that's the better idea. Instead of going, well, maybe God's removing his hand of blessing because we're seeking to to change God's nature. We're seeking to kill our babies through things like abortion. We're seeking things like injustice and all of the different things that are happening. Instead of us repenting of that, we're celebrating that stuff, thinking that, man, if we just go deeper into it, things will get better. That's exactly what's happening. Like I refuse to repent of my deeds. I won't do it. I love the darkness. I love the deeds of sin and rebellion. Brothers and sisters, when we see this happening in our world, we must pray for people 
that are engaging in this response. Just pray for them. You're not going to get angry with them, but pray for them, recognizing their ultimate destination. John then sees the sixth bowl. It's poured out, and the judgment seems to be a great spiritual deception that comes from the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet that's drawing the whole world to make outright war against God and his people. So the third response that we see to God's judgments is outright, outright war against him. So you're like, we're no longer content to just ignore him. We're no longer content to just keep doing the things that we want to do in our darkness. Now we want to destroy him. We want him dead. We want him gone. The more people give in to their sin, the more people are given over to the sin, the more they outrightly begin to say things like, we don't need God. God is a bigot. God is an egotistical maniac. God is homophobic. God is an oppressor. God is only for weak people. God is not love. God is full of hate. You hear this in our culture? You don't think that our culture is turning against God to make war against him? But this is the natural progression of sin. This is what happens. As you harden your heart in sin, you're not content to just ignore him. Now you have to go to war against him. You have to to go attack him. This is exactly what Romans 1 tells us is going to happen. There's going to be haters of God. Finally, John sees the seventh angel. And there is a great declaration that says, it is done. And we're going to come back to that in just a couple of moments. It's the same Greek word that's used in chapter 21, verse 6. And we seem to be seeing here the end. Judgment against all who war against God. And what is the response of people in the midst of this judgment? They will eternally curse him. It's interesting, there's no statement about repentance in this part of the text. It's the only, it's the only response that doesn't seem to allow for repentance because if this is truly a picture of the end, repentance is no longer an option. And I think we oftentimes have this idea that on this tragic day, when God finally brings judgment against all who have stood against him, and he says, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats, and some are going to be raised for eternal life, and some to eternal condemnation. Like, like when he says that, we get this idea that people will fall upon their knees, and they're going to wail, and they're going to lament, and they're going to regret the decisions that they make. And that is not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says they will curse him. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Like, even when faced before the throne of God, when they see his glory and they see that everything was true and right and they know their destination, they're not falling upon their knees, they're not pleading for his mercy, they're not pleading for his grace, they are shaking his fist at him. People are not going to go into eternity in woe over their sin. They're going to be going into eternity shaking their fist at God. Because this is the natural progression of sin, isn't it? This is what happens in sin. And this is going to be a tragic day. Hope-filled message on Father's Day. But it is. Do you remember those words that I said a few moments ago? And then we read in Revelation chapter 16, verse 
17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and the loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. What is done? God's wrath and his judgments against rebellion, his judgments against sin, his judgments against all of those who have, who have spit upon him and cursed him and refused to turn and find life, even though he's constantly trying to get back to it. But when you hear that word and those words, does it remind you of anything else in the New Testament that you've heard? What does Jesus say on the cross as he's about to breathe his last It is finished. Both are dealing with the exact same thing. Both statements are dealing with the wrath of God finally and completely. But for Jesus, when he says it is finished, he is saying, I'm taking that wrath on my shoulders for all who would put their faith in me. We've already heard it is finished. There is no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no longer fear of the day when he will say it is done against the sin of those who have remained unrepentant. Like we have hope. It is finished. Like that's awesome. Like there's amazing encouragement for those of us in that space. Like because it's done. Like you don't go back to the wrath of God. It's been totally taken care of. Like there's no more left. We talked about that before. And so here ultimately comes to the final response that this text requires for us to engage. And it is this response, brothers and sisters, to turn and live. Find life. Find life. Like this is always there. The option is always there. In Leviticus 26, where it's like, if you walk away, and if I punish you, and you still walk away, and if I bring, turn my face against you, and you still walk away, if at any point you turn and confess your sins, I'll be faithful to my covenant. It's always there for us. This is the whole point of it. So here's, here, here's what we need to say. For believers in this space, For those of you who have put trust in Jesus Christ and you feel like you have trusted in Jesus' statement, it is done. The wrath of God is finished for you. For you, I would ask, how are you dealing with sin in your own life? How do you respond to sin in your own life? When the word of God brings it to your attention, when a brother or sister brings sin to your attention, when there's consequences of sin in your life that force you to look upon yourself and be like, oh, like that was my mistake. Like when that comes to attention, like what do you do? Do you refuse to give God glory? Do you refuse to repent of your deeds? Will you ultimately find yourself hardening yourself towards sin and making war against God because you refuse to acknowledge your sin? Like here's the thing, like we as brothers and sisters, should be the quickest to acknowledge, confess, and turn and find life. Are we? Dad, you want to know one of the best things you can do in your home? Is show your kids what repentance looks like. Like when you mess up, which you will, some of you did this morning, 
Some of you did this week. Like when you mess up, like will you example for them your trust in Jesus' forgiveness and show them what true repentance is? That you can, you can at any point, no matter how many times you screwed up, no matter how many times you've treated your wife un, uncaringly, no matter how many times you have become a, you've you put all your trust in your work and you've not been there, no matter how many times you can do that, you can always turn and find life and say, I'm sorry, I confess that, that was sin and I want to repent. And you can example that before the Lord. Will you? Or in pride, will you hold on to your sin? Or because you love darkness, will you hold on to your sin? This isn't just for dads, by the way. Like, this is for all of us. Like, how will we respond? Because God's discipline is in our lives all the time, isn't it? Like, that's what the scripture says. Like, he disciplines those whom he loves. Because he wants us to find life. Will we be a people of repentance? So we're going to close here in just a moment, and I would just ask that as we sing this song, and we're, going to, we're doing this very intentionally, I want you to consider, is there sin in your life that you have been tempted to harden your heart towards? And if there is, I would invite you to turn, repent, and find life in Christ. And we're doing this now. We're giving you space to do that now in this moment as we sing a song and as we respond because we're going to take communion afterwards to remind us of God's abiding love for us. Amen? So we're going to do that. And for, for you as believers, that is what I'm asking. Would you respond to sin that's in your life? How will you respond to sin in your life? Will you respond the way the world is going to respond or will you respond the way Jesus is calling you to respond and find life? If you are not a believer in this room and you have never put yourself under the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and thrown yourself underneath his lordship and put your trust in his declaration of it is done, you are also going to have to respond because he's trying to tell you that your sin is going to lead to death And if you're responding by a continual hardening of your heart, a refusal to give God glory, a refusal to repent of your deeds, you need to hear this morning that in love, he's going to continue to allow things in your life to call you to himself. And each of those is an opportunity, including this morning. Will you turn and live? Or will you just double down This day's coming. He's going to say it's done. He's going to. And you have an opportunity for this morning to ensure that when he says it's done, at the end of times, that statement does not cause you fear, but joy. Because Jesus has already said it's done. And he's inviting you to that. That's the point. Because he's not willing that any should perish. He doesn't take pleasure in it. He wants us to turn and live. So I want to call you to respond. If you want to talk to somebody about following Jesus and what that looks like, and you don't want to find yourself in this space, but you want to turn and live this morning, like I want to encourage you to come and talk to one of us this morning during this song. I want to invite our elders and our pastors to come up to the front and go ahead and do that now. 
Um, I know people are still sitting, but go ahead and make your way up to the front now just so people see that you're up here. Um, If you want to just, again, talk about sin in your home, sin in your life that you want to repent of, you want to lay down, this is a great day to do that. Don't worry about the time. I know we're late, but we wanted to do dad jokes. So if we can give time and service to do that, we should give time and service to respond to what God is telling us is the way he sees sin. And so I just encourage you, like, if you need to do this during this time to come and talk with someone, to repent, to confess, like, that's what he calls us to do. You're not going to find judgment from us. How could we bring judgment upon you if Jesus isn't going to bring judgment upon you? So prepare your hearts for communion. A time in our service where we'll together as the church take of the bread and the juice to remind us of what Jesus has bought for us, redeemed us from. So would you stand with me? I'm going to pray. And during this song, I should encourage you to posture yourself however you want to, to come down to the front to talk. Lord, turn and live. Turn and live. Turn and live. Lord, just between you and me and our own times, you know I have had to turn countless times. This is not a one-time thing in our life. We don't turn once. We have to turn over and over and over again, constantly trusting your, your faithfulness and your goodness. But every time there's life, so I want to pray for Christians here, my brothers and sisters this morning, those that are trapped in sin, those that know of sin in their life. It's wreaking havoc in their relationships. It's wreaking havoc in their marriages. It's wreaking havoc in their relationships with their kids, in the way they view wealth and money, the, the discontentedness in their hearts, the, the dissatisfaction in their lives. And they just, they won't do, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would soften hearts this morning, that they might turn and find life. They don't have to walk out of here enslaved to the same garbage. As your word says, we can throw it off. Everything that hinders us, we can cast it away by the power of your spirit. That we might find life. That's what you want for us. You want life. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful, bold, gutsy. I pray that dads, even right now in this, in this morning, would example it for their kids. They'd be willing to step out and say, like, I, I, I'm repenting because that's what it means to be a believer in Jesus. I pray, Father, for those that don't know you this morning. Oh, Lord, open their eyes to the glories of your statement. It is finished on the cross. May they come underneath that protection, that umbrella, the umbrella of your love and your grace and your mercy, that they don't have to fear this day. So Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would accomplish this in the next couple moments. Help us to respond. Only your spirit can do this work in our hearts. So we give you the time. Hear our voices as we sing. In your name, amen.